0: Timothy, my son, I am giving you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies previously made about you, so that by recalling them you may fight the good fight, having faith and a good conscience. Some, may, some have rejected these and have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, who have delivered to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. Grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our Lord stands forever. You join prayer. Lord, we come to you today just grateful and praising you for your faithfulness and your kindness to us. Um, God, over the last year and a half as we've bounced around from place to place. Uh, God, it's nothing new for the people of God to have lived that way. Um, and God, we thank you now for how you've walked with us throughout and provided. Uh, this place for us to be able to come and worship now. Uh, every week, every Sunday morning, uh, and even in so many specific ways, your kindness and your provision. always what you brought a mission trip, a missing team down from Alabama to help get all this stuff ready. Um, and the timing was perfect this week. I mean, we know that your hand uh, was behind all of that. Providence is only seen in the rearview mirror, but looking back, we see all the ways uh, in which you've guided us. Been with us, walking next to us, and cared for us. And God, we thank you and we praise you. Uh, and God, we also come to you right now and pray that this morning, as we look at your word, God, you would open our hearts, see the truth, what you have for us. God, this a story about a couple of guys who've turned away from the faith and an old apostle writing to a young pastor. Uh, God, help us to see the ways in which you want us to live as a result of what you've written and revealed in your world. And we need your spirit and we need your help to do it. And pray that you would come and do that now. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, guys, welcome to The Grove. My name is Caleb Brazier, and I am one of the pastors here at The Grove. Uh, and just, I'm just excited to be here. I don't know about anybody else. I'm just excited to be here. It's been a year for so many people and for so many churches. Um, and for us over the last year and a half, man, we went from being online for a few months after COVID uh, in March of last year to then meeting outside in the tent with a lot of ants. Those were, that was our regular attenders there in June, July, and August um, on Sunday nights and then moving to another church in the afternoon in September to last week. And so again, had you told me a year and a half ago that that's what our story was going to be, okay, for well, pretty much you're not going to meet except online, then you're going to be Sunday night. Outside, No child with a bunch of ants. Uh, and then you're going to be at <laughs> another church at 1 o'clock. And you can't get in until 1230 because they're having a service right before that. Um, but good luck. I know you've got two young kids, Caleb, and that's like right at nap time. But but here you go. That's what you've got for a number of months. Um, had you told me that was going to be our story a year and a half ago, I would have said, God, let us please just still be a church at this point. And, and far from that, God has moved in incredible ways last year and a half. Um, he has uh, shown us the importance of discipleship, what it means to follow Jesus and continue to grow and build this church. And to a point now, as we uh, move into this location now, seeing uh, all that God has done is just absolutely uh, remarkable. So uh, I am just, again, happy to be here. And again, just seeing the ways in which God has grown my trust and stepping into, another, which really always does, right? But we we want to know the plan, but God's like, I'm telling you the next step. I'll tell you what the next five will look like, or the next ten. The next one. So in the last year and a half, seen the ways in which God has just cared and provided for us. And so uh, we come then this morning, and again, as Garrett said, it's great to be able to say this morning again, and not to say this afternoon, and always correct ourselves. It is the morning again, and we are continuing our study through the book of First Timothy. We started this a couple weeks ago, uh, and we're walking now verse by verse through the books of First and Second Timothy. So we'll be in First Timothy chapter one. This morning, so you got your Bibles, so you go and flip there. Uh, meet me there. We'll be in 1 Timothy one, and today we're going to be in verses eighteen through twenty, as Avery read just a little while ago. Verses eighteen through twenty. So you're flipping there. Uh, we need to recap a little bit of what Paul's doing here in this letter to Timothy. So last week we saw verses three through seventeen. Paul, an apostle who was called by God to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to everyone outside of Israel has been going around and planting churches in the book of Acts. And then after that, we see the New Testament and him writing letters back to those churches. Or, as is the case here, he's writing to a pastor at one of those churches. Here, the church in Ephesus, and this young pastor, Timothy. More than likely, Timothy was in his mid-30s. He was young. Paul was um, uh, his mentor. Uh, Timothy was his spiritual protege. Paul had a close relationship with Timothy. And so Paul here is worried about some of the stuff that's happening in Ephesus. And so Paul gets right to the point at the beginning saying, here's what I'm really worried about, Timothy. You've got to make sure there's some false teaching that's made its way into the church. And you've got to teach sound doctrine. You have to teach what is true. You have to instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine. He says there in verse 3, he goes on to say these false teachers were misusing the law. They're misunderstanding it. They weren't applying it correctly to our lives. And Paul says, you've got to understand what the law is. So there in verse 7, he's showing what these teachers were trying to do. They want to be teachers of the law. But they don't understand what they're saying, what they're insisting on. Then verse 8, Paul goes off on a tangent. Paul breaks his train of thought. He's a great pastor, great preacher. He goes off on a tangent chasing a rabbit trail then in verses 8 through 17. It again, gives my conscience the ability to feel free to be able to go off on tangents on uh, Sunday mornings. Because Paul here in verse 8, he's talking about these teachers. He's like, but we need to make sure we have a proper understanding of what the law is. The law is good. Let's talk about the law. Let's not only then talk about the law, verse 12, then he says, let's talk about my testimony and God's grace in me his mercy towards me. I wasn't deserving of being a Christian. I killed Christians. Paul says I was the worst of them. But he said, this this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he continues then in this understanding of God's extraordinary mercy and patience, leading them to this hymn of response in verse 17. And he finishes with nothing. King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God in glory, Honor forever and ever, Amen. It seems like that's the end of the book, but that's just the end of Paul's tangent. So Paul, here in verse thirteen or here in verse eighteen, is getting back to his train of thought that he picked up in verse seven. So we kind of skipped over the rabbit trail, and now we're getting back to this. Paul is saying, "Okay, now Timothy, back back to the point here, Timothy, my son. Remember the issue at hand: these false teachers that have entered the church, this false teaching that is here within the church." He said, "This is what." need to talk about. This was the primary concern for Paul, making sure the gospel stayed guarded, that the gospel stayed protected, and that Timothy continued to fight the fight. So as Paul reengages with Timothy here, we see Paul tells Timothy two things, in essence, two points that we'll be at here this morning. Paul encourages Timothy to keep fighting the fight, and secondly, to not wreck the ship. Timothy, here's my charge, my instruction, my command to you. Keep fighting the fight and don't wreck the ship. Keep fighting the fight and don't wreck the ship. And at the end, I want us to spend some time and see how what it is Paul is concerned about and ask the question why he's concerned about that. And it is isn't the things that we're concerned about. So that's kind of our uh, path for the morning. So first, verses 18 and 19, Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, keep fighting the fight. Look at verse 18. He begins here. Timothy, my son, you see and can feel the warmth and affection in Paul's voice, the relationship that he has with this young pastor. He sees him as a spiritual son in the faith. Timothy, my son. And he gets on to the point. He says, here's what I'm doing. I am giving you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies previously made about you. So it's the same instruction that Paul mentioned in verse 5, the goal of our instruction. He's saying this is our instruction. This is why I'm doing this for you. This word instruction, also be translated as command, This kind of, you can imagine a general giving an order to someone who's uh, beneath them, and give that kind of instruction, that kind of command. Paul's carrying a certain kind of weight here, saying, Timothy, here's what's happening. I'm giving you this instruction, this charge, this command, and it's keeping with the prophecies that were previously made about you. We don't know exactly what those prophecies were. We don't know the, the uh, kind of the, the flavor of them. Uh, but what we can know is that Paul is saying there were things, these prophecies that were spoken about you, whether or not it was um, a spiritual gift, or a prophecy, or whether or not it was uh, elders coming and laying on hands uh, on him and uh, confirming him as an elder pastor and teach there at Ephesus. Paul's wanting Timothy to understand, hey, I know that these prophecies confirmed in your life the calling that God has on you. So Timothy, you know not just that others view you this way, but also God has called you into this ministry. And so I'm going to give you this charge, this command, that is in keeping in line with what God has called you to do. And why would Paul give him this instruction to teach sound doctrine? Or in 2 Timothy, he puts it this way, to preach the word. Why would Paul give him that instruction? He tells us, he said, I'm giving you this instruction so that, verse 19, By recalling them, you may fight the good fight, having faith and a good conscience. Also, I'm giving you this command to teach what is true. Because you need to know you're in a fight. You, you need to to teach sound doctrine, to teach what God has revealed to be true about who we are, who he is, what he's designed this world, because there are others who are now in who are teaching something opposite of that, something contrary to that, something other than that. And Timothy, you need to know you're in a fight. You are engaged in battle. That's the nature of what you're doing, Timothy. There is a war that is happening, and you're... On the front line of it, Paul is wanting Timothy to see that he's not just kind of playing politics or trying to make friends and influence people or win friends and influence people. There is a war that is happening, and Paul is telling him, hey, here's the instruction you've got. As you do this, there will be opposition, but Timothy, keep fighting the good fight. And as you do it, make sure you do it with having faith and a good conscience, both belief and behavior. Because hey, so you have the faith, the, the truth of the gospel and what God has revealed to us, but also a good conscience. Living morally with what God has given you, having both of those. You can't have one and not the other. You can't teach what is true and then live contrary to what God's called us. We've seen that far too often in the church. The prolific people have public ministries for years and all comes crashing down and reveals they had a whole secret life of sin. That's having the faith, but it's not having a good conscience. You can't be a good person but teach what is untrue. I'm sure they have good motives. What they're, what they're saying may or may not be what God has revealed. And Paul saying, no, but here's what you've got to do, Timothy, is you're fighting this fight. that faith and a good conscience. Paul tells him, you're be a, Timothy, keep fighting the fight. You're engaged in battle. Because I think it's a good reminder for us this morning. Because us Westerners, we like to think logically and um, we like to think with what we can see. And sometimes I fear, especially people kind of in our camp, we love the Bible, we love the scripture, we love truth, but sometimes we, we neglect the spiritual realm that is real. And when Paul's writing about this battle, it's important for us to remember each one of us, as we step into this story, that God's called us this mission of his, to expand his kingdom and to bring it here on earth as it is in heaven, to go and make disciples of all nations as he's called each and every one of us to do that, Prince, you are engaging in battle. And the encouragement to Timothy is the same encouragement to you. Keep fighting the fight. I think for us, the, the realization we need to remind ourselves of this morning is that we are in a fight. I think sometimes we can get really comfortable with life. Just go to work. Go to church. Not ruffling feathers. Don't pray too much. Try to pray. Then I fall asleep. So and then I get upset, and then I feel bad. So I confess that on the Sunday at church. And then my mind drifts as we're confessing. And I can hear all the noises. And so then I confess that. And we we just kind of move through life. And I worry that for us and, and people kind of uh, in our church or in this camp can forget that we are engaged in a spiritual war. We need to remind ourselves and hear this encouragement to keep fighting the good fight. To the same church in Ephesus, Paul wrote a letter, the letter of Ephesians, and he describes it this way in Ephesians six. He says, "For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heaven." Paul is saying, "That's our enemy." That's who we are fighting. Our struggle, our battle, this fight is not against flesh and blood. It's not against other people. It's not against politicians. It's not against uh, culture. It's not against anything we can see. It's against darkness. It's against the spiritual realm. We're engaged in this battle. Also in Ephesians, Paul describes it this way. This is the team that we're fighting. Is Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. Paul's describing the enemy saying, hey, he's the ruler of the air. He's the, the, the domain of darkness is his. And we're engaged in this battle against him. Colossians 1, Paul referred to it as way. God has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. These two kingdoms at war with one another. And God has called you in the Great Commission to step onto the battlefield. He's called you, not not staff members, not pastors, not community group leaders. He's called you to be ambassadors for his kingdom. To carry that message of reconciliation into the world. He's charged you to get off the seat and into the game. And being a basketball gym is a perfect setting for us to understand that. You are on the battlefield and we have to realize it. And when you realize that there will be opposition and we will need this encouragement, keep fighting the good fight. St. So Song, uh, later on, the second, third stanza, it was like this, reminding us of this truth, that we are one with Christ, knowing that I will encounter harm and hatred for his name. There's opposition this coming, But, Mine is armor for that battle. It's strong enough to last the war. And he has said that he will deliver it safely to the golden shore. Because we are engaged in battle. We need to keep fighting the good fight. It's an instruction that Paul gives to Timothy. In a negative sense though, Paul says, okay, keep fighting, fight. And he also tells him, but as you're fighting, don't break the ship. Don't wreck the ship. We see this in the second half of 19. Paul says, You want to keep fighting the fight of the faith and the good conscience, which some have rejected and shipwrecked the faith. Among them are Himnaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. So, Paul's now naming names. Paul's on Twitter giving the acts for the people that are teaching false doctrine from earlier in the chapter. Paul's calling them out and saying, here they are. You know them. They're teaching within the church. Uh, Hymenaeus gets mentioned later in 2 Timothy 4 with exactly what he was teaching. He was teaching that the resurrection of the dead had already happened. and Jesus had returned. Uh, the resurrection had already happened. It was in the past. And Paul's saying, I mean, you've got to get rid of that in 2 Timothy 4. He said, if you don't, it will spread like gangrene. These people have departed from the faith. They're ruining the faith of some. And so we know that one day Jesus will return. When he returns, one things we believe is that those who are dead in Christ will bodily rise again. And then dwell with him for eternity. As the, the Apostles' Creed, if you grow up in a tradition that says the Apostles' Creed, it's exactly how it is. I believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Amen. And Hymenaeus and others were teaching that it had already happened. They were misusing the law. They were false teachers. So Paul's saying, hey, you've got to, Timothy, make sure you steer clear of them. Confront them. Make sure that this doesn't spread. And so we don't know exactly what Hymenaeus' role was within the church. We know he was a teacher. We know he had some kind of influence. So most commentators believe it's safe to assume he was probably an elder or a pastor there in Ephesus. So you can imagine the tension of a young, new church. I mean, when I say young and new, I mean like like this is the first couple of years of Christianity existing. And now you have now the leadership at odds with one another. And not just over what color the carpet should be or what color the the wood floor should be, but over truth about whether or not the gospel is real, what the gospel means. And so you can imagine that The difficulty intention that's placed on a young pastor having to step into this as one of the other pastors are now teaching something that's not true. How is he supposed to handle this? And Paul's telling them, Timothy, you've got to stand up. Keep fighting the fight. These others have rejected the faith, and they've shipwrecked the faith. Timothy, don't do that. Don't wreck the ship. He tells them that these people have made this conscious decision. This wasn't a slow drift over time. This was a decision for them to say, hey, we're rejecting this and going to hold to this. Paul's saying, Timothy, you've got to make sure you not only teach what is true, you've also got to call them out. He said, because these men, you look at verse 20, that among them are Himeas and Alexander, what does Paul say he's considered them? He says, I have delivered them to Satan. This is what Paul has done. He's delivered them to Satan. What an odd phrase. What does it mean to Paul say he's delivered them to Satan? Is Paul some kind of like spiritual power so he can heal people, right? Remember Paul's preaching one time? A guy was listening to him, got bored, fell asleep, fell out the window, and died, and Paul went and raised him back in the in Acts. So you have read the Bible? The Bible is very interesting. Uh, it's a real story. Um, so this guy kind of falls out of That Paul raises him back to life. Does Paul also have like negative spiritual powers? He like deliver people to Satan and like make them sick or suffer or what is what is Paul talking about here? Well, to do that, if you have a question like that in the Bible. Here's what you should do: you first look at the context. The context is there. Look at the broader context in that book or by the same author. See they use a similar phrase. And Then outside of that, look at the entirety of the scripture. And let Scripture help you interpret Scripture. Because you can take that phrase out, you can make it mean whatever you want to mean. Our goal is to understand: Paul had a thought in his mind when he wrote to Timothy, and he said, I've delivered him to Satan. We've got to figure out then, as people who study the Bible, what was in Paul's mind. So as we do that, we ask him: Has Paul said something like that anywhere else? What we see is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul's writing to this young church in Corinth, and they were having an issue in the church. Was it with the leaders or with their members? And Paul says, uh, hey, guys, um, yeah, so we've got to talk about something. Uh, there's someone in your church that's doing something that even the culture, even the Corinth, even uh, Gentiles wouldn't agree with, wouldn't approve of. There's someone in the church who was sleeping with a stepmother. The church was fine, wouldn't do anything. So 1 Corinthians 5, Paul's saying, guys, you've got to do something about this. You can't let sin exist within your church like this it will spread like leaven leavens a whole lump you got to do something paul tells them that you have to in verse Corinthians 5 verse 5 hand that one over to satan for the destruction of the flesh the same kind of language delivered to satan handed over to satan for destruction what was paul talking about well people understand that here in verse Corinthians 5 and verse 1 Paul is talking about the process that Jesus gives in Matthew 18, which is known as church discipline. When there is public, blatant, uh, serious, and unrepented sin in someone's life, it's Matthew 18, Jesus says, Go and confront that brother or sister one on one. If they repent and want to it over, praise God. But if they don't, then bring two or three with you. Confront them then. And if still they won't listen, then take it to the church. And they still won't listen and repent, even in front of the church. Jesus says to treat them then as a Gentile or tax collector. To be removed then from the body, from the fellowship, to be considered a Christian. but To be seen and viewed and treated as if they weren't Christian. Because their life isn't matching up with what they said. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1 Paul is using that same kind of language here. Saying that you then hand that one over to Satan to deliver a... Uh, the one to Satan, to remove them then from God's embassy here on earth, his local church, remove them from that embassy, and then have them delivered back to the domain of darkness, handed over to Satan, be considered no longer as a Christian, but as someone um, who has rejected the faith. So We can't get into the rest of time. There's probably lots of questions. We may not have been around churches and talked about church discipline and what that means, we do not have time to keep diving into that. If you have questions, feel free to email me. Um, we'll talk about it later. Uh, but We've got other things that I think God wants us to see here. What Paul is saying is that this is what he has done. He has delivered these men to Satan, saying they need to be removed from the congregation. They're like teaching something and Is isn't true. They're not repenting of it. Removed from God's church. Delivered back to the domain of the darkness. To say. It doesn't mean that there's like a, a, an Amish shunning in which you don't see them. If you watch The Office and Dwight shuns Jim where he just like talk to him, then he unshuns and talked to him for a little while and he shuns himself again. That's not what Paul is talking about here. Paul and Jesus say to treat them like a Gentile or tax collector or to treat them as those who aren't Christians. How do you treat them who aren't Christians? You love them. You pray for them. You invite them over to your house for dinner. You invite them to church. It's not punishment. It's not punitive. Right? And that's what we see here. Is it's meant to be restorative. Why did Paul deliver them to Satan? Well, he tells us, look now at verse 5, again at verse 20. Am I delivered over to Satan? Why? So that they may be taught not to blaspheme. Also, they need to understand what they're teaching is false. The church has stood up and said, hey, this is not the gospel. We continue to teach this. You have to be removed from the church. But the hope is that they will repent, come back, and be taught not to blaspheme anymore. Hope is they will be restored back to the congregation. That is the hope. That is the aim. That is the goal of it all. Which is the same thing in 1 Corinthians 5 to hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. It's a similar language that in this conversation, old, early in the Old Testament, between God and Satan in the very beginning of Job, in the prologue of Job, Satan's having this conversation with Job. I mean, Satan's had this conversation with God about Job. He's saying, hey, this guy, walking right, following you. Satan says, listen, let me Adam, he'll reject you. So what does God do? God says, okay, go ahead. But here's the language that the author uses in Job chapter 2, verse 6. This is what God says to say. Behold, Job is in your hand. the similar language we hear from 1 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 1. But notice that in each of these situations, in Job, uh, Satan had at him, but Job didn't fall away. And in fact, that story, perhaps more than any other story, God has used to comfort his children who are hurting and walking through suffering over and over and over again. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is saying the hope is that they would be restored and saved the day of the Lord. In verse 21, the hope is that they would be been taught not to blaspheme. In all of this, the hope is restoration. And in fact, being delivered over the hand of Satan, God actually uses what the enemy is doing to be able to accomplish his purpose and bring restoration. And Job in 1 Corinthians and in 1 Timothy, Andreas Kostenberger commentator, put it this way, that God uses Satan as his instrument to accomplish his purpose. There's a great resource that came out. The, the title of it is Ridiculous, but it gets the point across. Here's the name of the book. Satan as adversary and ally in the process of ecclesial discipline. The use of the prologue to Job in 1 Corinthians 5.5 5 and 1 Timothy 1, <laughs> I mean, a PhD the I mean, title book. <laughs> but you hear it there at the very beginning, and I love this. Satan as adversary and ally. The use of the prologue of Job in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Timothy 1. What does that mean? It means this: God stands above the enemy and uses even his purposes for the good of his children the glory of his name. See, sometimes I feel like the, this battle can be put forward as though it's like two opposing forces. Both kind of got good numbers, good strategy. Let's see who's gonna win. What's gonna happen? Good versus evil, yin and yang, black, white, day and night. What's going to happen here? But you read the Bible, that is not the story. The enemy only has any kind of ability to do anything in Job because God has allowed it to happen. And he uses it to be able to accomplish his good purposes. That he uses all things for the good of those who are called according to his purpose and the glory of his name. That which the enemy means for evil, God then takes and he uses it for good. And Satan then stands both as an adversary but also as an ally, even in this purpose of church discipline, of ecclesial discipline is what we see here. This is what Paul is saying that the hope is that people will be restored. Even Hymenaeus and Alexander will be restored back to the faith, back to the church, even back into leadership. This is what Paul is writing to him here in verses 18 through 20. Timothy, keep fighting the fight. Timothy, don't wreck the ship. Keep fighting the fight, don't wreck the ship. I want to finish thinking about this thought. And asking the question. What does Paul think is the greatest problem in the Church of Ephesus? What is Paul worried about? What gets Paul's pulse pounding? If Paul's a blogger, what's he writing blogs about? Paul's on Twitter, what's he tweeting about? Paul's on Facebook, what's he writing Facebook posts about? What do you see him get emotionally engaged with? What we see here in verse 1 is Paul, like we talked about last week, is concerned about maintaining, guarding, protecting, and passing on the gospel. 1 Corinthians, he said, this is first importance. And you know what other things that are important? He said, there's a clear hierarchy here and the gospel's on top. This is a first importance. It gets him, gets him going. It gets his pulse pounding. And so what, then, is the greatest threat to the gospel? You ever heard people say stuff like this? Blank is the greatest threat to the gospel since the world. What would you say? How would you feel in that way? Blank is the greatest threat to the gospel today. How would you feel in that way? Because we may be filling it in incorrectly. What we want to do is look and see what Paul believed the threat was. And then take that to us to see how that might help shift and shape one of our things. First, though, I want to clarify one thing. Blank is the greatest threat to the gospel, and maybe I'm the only one that's heard people say things like that, especially recently. It's like Christianity's never had any kind of adversary until the 21st century, right? We, we've been floating along, but now we're in trouble, right? Now there's the internet, and God doesn't know what to do, so if there's trouble of ruin. So, what's happened? Blank is the greatest threat to the gospel. Maybe I'm the only one, but. That's Heard it often. I want to clarify one thing first. Friends, there is no threat to the gospel. First of all, the gospel is good news. It is an announcement of what's already been accomplished. There's no threat to something that's already happened, something that's already been won. Right last night, Mississippi State led the charge as a victory against VCU and ended their 22 game win streak. And they moved on to the regional championship, which you can watch tonight at 7 p.m. Central on ESPN. <laughs> But if I were to stand up here today, we won 16-4, by the way. We, I, I use this collectively, so we're all missing these fans This uh, morning, I graduated from there in 2011. We've all just graduated from there in the last five minutes. But if I were to stand here this morning and go, boy, I'll tell you what, our hitting is the greatest threat we have to losing the VCU last night. You look at me and go, well, we won 16-4 last night. There's no threat to us losing the game. It's already been won. But friends, it's important for us to understand the same thing. There is no threat to the gospel. It has already been won. Our enemy has already been defeated, and Jesus already promised He's going to build the church. So listen to me. Take a breath. It's okay. I've read the end of the book. It's going to be okay. Jesus will win. The enemy doesn't have a chance. So while there may not be a threat to the gospel, there are barriers and hurdles to people understanding or to us conveying the gospel. That is true. I think it's an important caveat to make as we talk about this. So what then is the greatest, not even threat I would say, but hurdle? One of the greatest hurdles and barriers to people understanding or to us sharing the gospel today? I want to make sure that we put the X on the right spot because if we miss that, we will spend a lot of time being really frustrated about things that we shouldn't be. I right, put it this way there's an old story. Uh, you look at, I looked it up on Snopes. It's there. It checks it out so it's got the true Story about Henry Ford who was in his factory having a problem with one of his generators. Couldn't figure it out. It was an important generator, huge. No one could figure out what the problem was. So Henry Ford hired General Electric and an engineer from General Electric to come and see what was happening. This engineer's name was Charles Steinmetz, and he walked into the factory and said, okay, here's what I need, I need a cot, I need a piece of paper, I need a pencil. So he brought him those things, he set it up next to the generator, and he slept there, stayed there for two days straight, listening, scribbling down notes, thinking. On the third day, he said, okay, now I need a ladder. So he brought a ladder, he climbed up on top and took a piece of chalk, and a ladder and a piece of chalk, You got it on the chalk, climbed up put an X on the generator, Back down, he said that's what she to change. left the next day. Charles uh, Henry Ford got a bill for ten thousand dollars, which in that day was an extraordinary amount of money, especially for a problem like this. But Henry Ford kind of boxed a little bit. He's like, Okay, you you got a chalk a piece of chalk and drew an X, and now I'm paying you ten thousand dollars. Why is that the case? Here's what Steinmetz replied with. He said, here's the breakdown of the expenses. Making chalk mark on generator, $1. Knowing where to make the mark, $9,999. <laughs> We've got to make sure we get to know where to put the X. We've got to make sure we know what we need to focus our attention on. Because otherwise, we will miss and spend a lot of time uh, missing what it is God has for us. Often in the church today, it feels like, we, we feel like the issues for us, the barriers of understanding the gospel, or sharing the gospel, it's because the church maybe doesn't have enough power or influence. There aren't enough well-to-do or influential people who are involved in the church. And We need actors or businessmen, respected, well-to-do people. We need celebrities uh, to be able to become Christians, and become our spokesperson, so that then we can take this thing into the world. We need more power. We need more influence. Maybe sometimes I feel like people in the church need to be able to uh, overcome culture. You can feel the culture running in the opposite direction right now in America the Bible. I can feel people wanting to hold on to and step in as cultural warriors and fight and say, No, we're going to win the culture back for Jesus. We've got to get good movies in Hollywood. We've got to get good music going. We've got to make sure we don't lose the culture because we lose the culture. We're say, How's the gospel going to be able to truly advance? This is the most strategic thing we can do. We need to be power and influence. I Maybe mean, we need to change, win culture. And the third thing I hear often is politics. When we just have the right politicians. then When does politics ever make the church? If we just have the right politicians. just have the right people in office. You know, then we can move forward. We have the wrong people in office or the man in trouble. and are We're going to do it. I feel like we can often spend a lot of time feeling like that's what we need to aim at. One of those to power influence, culture, politics. We spend a lot of time, a lot of emotion, a lot of frustration trying to win areas in those fields and saying, these are the threats, these are the great dangers, and we got to fight this fight. If you don't want to look at, I want to look at three case studies in the Bible, all with Paul, and see with each of these as they compare what it was that Paul focused on. See, in Ephesus, here where Timothy is the pastor, Ephesus was a significant center of trade in the first century. It was in the harbor of the River in Western Asia Minor. It had a long, fertile valley, it had major roads that connected to every city in Asia. And for Paul, if Paul wanted to be able to get power or influence or economic stability within the church or influence or people involved. Paul may say, hey, if we can get influential people in Ephesus in the church, then it's going to export all throughout Asia. But notice what Paul's concern was in 1 Timothy. It wasn't, hey, Timothy, get more powerful people in your church. It was, guard against false teaching. That was Paul's concern? Odd. In Corinth, again, we already mentioned it. Corinth was a young, vibrant, growing, really wealthy city. Kind of like a, a Las Vegas the double port city was also very immoral. It had two ports, so lots of sailors were there. It was a had grown up quickly, it huge architecture. People were really impressed with it. new and flashy and big. They were setting culture for the Roman Empire. The third most important city at the uh, in biblical times when Paul wrote this, third most important city in the Roman Empire. It was a center for culture. May maybe Paul want to write to the church in Corinth and say, guys, you need culture makers in your church. You need architects. You need athletes. You need uh, people who are writing new plays or in the theater or whatever else. If you get them in your church, then you can win the culture and really make some ground for the gospel. I not right? interesting Paul didn't say any of that in 1st or 2nd Corinthians. We have two letters. mention anything to that. You know what Paul was concerned in 1st Corinthians? He was concerned about unrepentant sin. And immoral living in the church. That's what got pulse pounding. I'm worried about culture. I'm worried about sin within the church. Third, think about the church in Philippi. Paul founded this church in Acts 16, writes a letter back to them, it was Philippians. It was an influential city in the Roman Empire. Not only that, but Paul also in his letter to the church in Philippi writes this. He says, all the saints send you greetings especially, listen to this, those who belong to Caesar's household. You hear what Paul's saying? Paul is saying, hey, church in Philippi, guess what? I'm in Rome in prison right now. All the saints here send you greetings including the Christians who are in Caesar's household. They got an inroad into the emperor of Rome. And you would think Paul's saying, here's our chance. We've got inside men now. We've got guys on the inside. We can do it. We can share the gospel with the emperor, and then Rome will become a Christian empire. This is it. Here's finally the barrier to the gospel advancing is about to be removed because we're going to win this political structure for Jesus, and it's going to advance. But guess what? Paul didn't mention any of that. One of the he was concerned about is he just wanted to make sure they knew they were saying hello. You know what Paul was concerned about for the church in Philippi? He was concerned about division in the church. There's a division that was there between two women, Yodia and Syneki. He says in Philippians 4 2, I urge both of them to agree in the Lord. So, what does any of that mean? As we look at those three case studies, we see what gets Paul's heart pounding, what gets him emotionally engaged. Is it what's, what he sees as A is the greatest barrier and hurdles for understanding the gospel, sharing the gospel, seeing the gospel advance? It's not getting power and influence. It's not putting the culture It's not getting power and politics. Paul says, Be sure to guard against false teaching, sin in the church, and division in the church. You see where Paul's eyes are focused? Paul's eyes aren't focused out there. His pain and where he was the ex was in the church. Make sure there's no false teaching that's in here Remember, believe, guard the gospel. Don't let there be division. Don't let the enemy defy this church. And don't let sin just run random here. The we'll not hold it in true lines. Paul's X isn't out there, it's in here. Why is that? Well, I think Francis Schaeffer, mid 1900s theologian, philosopher, he put it this way. And this is what John Piper said before that sentences don't change people, paragraphs change people. I found that to be true. And this is one of the paragraphs that's changed me. It's reoriented this understanding of me. I think Schaefer captures it perfectly. He says this, remember he writes this in the mid nineteen hundreds. So the central problem of our age is not liberalism. Or modernism, nor the old Roman Catholicism, nor the new Roman Catholicism, nor the threat of communism, not even the threat of rationalism, and the monolithic consensus which surround us all—all all these are dangerous, but not the primary threat. of the distinction These are dangerous, yes, but it's not the primary threat. It's not the greatest threat. It's not where Paul put the eggs. It's not where Schaeffer's put the eggs. He says this: the real problem is this church of the Lord Jesus Christ, individually or corporately, tending to do the Lord's work in the power of the flesh rather than in the power of the Spirit, because the central problem is always in the midst of the people of God, not in the circumstances around. The central problem is always this, in the midst of the people of God, not in the circumstances surrounding. That's where the X is put in the midst of God's people, in His church. So, tell you one of the things that I have a concern about as a pastor is I see so many people worried about what's happening out there, and I see us placing the X out there, saying that's the problem. It's out there, and I think what the enemy's trying to do is get us to lift our eyes and neglect what is the greatest problem, the real threat, which is what's happening in the midst of God's people, whether it be division. Unrepented sin or false teaching because here's the deal. Do you know who Jesus needed to reach the entire world to the gospel of Jesus Christ? He didn't need influential people. He didn't need a powerful speaker. He didn't need to go and do these miracles around the entire world to get a huge following. He needed 12 ordinary, fairly idiotic men yeah. filled with his spirit who turned the world upside down. God doesn't need anything important. He wants people who are committed to him, who are living holy lives, following Jesus, filled with his spirit, unified in his spirit, and living and preaching the truth of the gospel. And when that happens, God doesn't need some huge rally. He just needs a group of ordinary people that are dedicated, committed to him, and saying, I know that I'm weak, but then that's where your power shines through in my weakness and being dependent on you and your powers, it is grace that you his grace may be in the problem isn't out there. That's not where the X is. The X should be here. It doesn't mean that things aren't dangerous. I think we should never talk about them. But we have to make sure we know what the real problem is, what the real threat is. And it's here in the midst of the people. always has been. You think back to the Exodus. You think back to the nation of Israel. Enslaved to Egypt. Had been for generations. What happens, right? Charles Nesson shows up, let my people go, people are delivered. They then leave all the miracles, the plagues, they then leave. And what happens? These slave generations, there's no army, they have nothing important, they no, no threat. They're then leaving Egypt, finally free, but all of a sudden what? They hear chariots pounding behind them. They turn around, Pharaoh changes his mind. Now you have the army of what was the most powerful civilization at that time chasing down a recently freed slave people. How's that going to turn out? We know how it turns out. God split the sea in half. The people walked through, and the army was valley. Why? Because the problem wasn't out there. Friends, in the power of God, there's never a problem out. There. There is no barrier. There is no threat. There is not any hurdle that he faces. Just simply something he has to walk through. And so it doesn't matter what happens out there in any realm. We want to fight it. We need to talk about it. We need to understand the dangers and the threat they pose. But I want to make sure that we're putting the X in the right place as a church. We're always focusing on our individual lives, our relationship with Jesus. Our nearness to Him and then as a church, our uh, devotion and purity of the gospel, our unity within the church, even amidst our diversity. Notice I didn't say uniformity, but unity. Being unified in diverse people, thoughts, coming together around the throne of Jesus, around the gospel, living lives as we follow Him, praying that then we would see God in you. That's what we are aiming for. That's what the X is. Why? because the central problem is always in the midst of the people of God and not in the circumstances surrounding them. Make sure we walk away with that. As we then leave here this morning, we walk away with a renewed sense to fight the good fight. We make sure we try not to wreck the ship. And as we go forward, we are fighting that fight, putting our energy and emotion into the health and the purity of Christ's pride. His church, being devoted to it, discipling one another within it, reaching and inviting other people into it, and always lifting high the name of Jesus, making disciples of Him, and then teaching others to obey everything that He has commanded them. us God, we are so grateful for who you are and your power. And always remember that you have no threats, the gospel has no friends. God, that victory has already been won. God, you have now called us into a fight. You called us into a war. God help us then to see what it is we are engaging in. God, help us to step into that story, into that commission. God, as we fight that good fight, help us make sure we don't wreck the ship and keep us then involved and connected within this church. God help us to always fight for unity, for the truth, for holiness of this church, knowing that there, it's there, that your spirit then descends and your spirit then moves and moves powerfully. God, we pray that we would see that in our congregation and in our community, God, that you would move mighty through us. God, we can't do it on our own. We need your help. I completely depend on you. So I pray that you would come and do it. We love you. We thank you so much for the promises you give us through your son Jesus. his name,